Well, five years ago, happy anniversary, by the way. Five years ago, uh, when we began, Wendy and I had the privilege of uh, taking the fall of that, uh, our first year together, and visiting all the small groups, and spending the time with, with the children. And we did that because we wanted to be with the children, but we also did that to allow uh, the adults to um, study together. And um, for those of you that may remember, uh, if you were part of the Walkers small group, remember we, uh, because of the age group there, we taught them a few songs. And, and I know some of you still have those because you send me the video every once in a while, and it's always fun to go back and, and do that. But one of those songs, because if you were at the Walkers um, that, that year, back in 2018, you remember one of the songs that we uh, taught you was a song by the title of My God is So Big. Remember, and it had motions and everything, and uh, Ramsey still remembers those motions. He's sung that for me not too long ago. My God is so big, I'm going to spare you the motions. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing our God or my God cannot do. Right? The mountains are His, the valleys are His, the stars are His handiwork too. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. And we ended that, ready, with, for you. Remember? Um, that would be a perfect theme song for our passage tonight. Um, the one that, that uh, John just read. If you haven't figured it out by now, um, the patriarchs were not perfect. Uh, their families were an absolute mess. Uh, so they were far from perfect. And, and there's no one in this passage tonight that's blameless. Everybody has a part to play. They all contributed something to the chaos that we just heard. And I don't think I need to warn you because you've just heard the passage. It, at points, it is very, very uncomfortable, some of the things that go on. But in this passage, God not only overcame a family's dysfunction, which included multiple adulterous relationships, uh, sibling rivalry, and all of the intense conflict and, and emotional strife that was associated with it all, he, he works through all of that and births a nation. And as he did so, we learn that nothing is too difficult for him. There is nothing he cannot do. We learn that He can bring life from what is barren. He can bring glory from shame. He can bring healing and hope from what is broken. He can bring well-being out of dysfunction. He can bring order out of chaos. And He can bring harmony out of discord. There's also nothing He can't overcome. He can overcome rejection he can overcome preferences. He can overcome our inability. He can overcome our faithlessness. He can overcome our discontent. He can overcome our sins. He can and will use anything and everything to bring about His purposes, which are, of course, for His glory and our good. And we're going to see all of that that I just said even though our outline only has three points. We're going to see tonight, we're going to see all of that take place in a, in a wife's rejection, a husband's reaction, 
and then a sibling rivalry. You'll find that outlined in its normal place. Children, you'll find your words in the normal place as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we continue. Father, we ask for you to work, that you would work by your Spirit, that you would give us eyes and ears to understand your words so that as it is preached, that our hearts would be convicted and our minds would be renewed, that our faith would be strengthened and our wills fortified. And I pray that we would, that you would make us able to receive it gladly and with anticipation. Would you fill me with your spirit, as always, that you would grant me grace, that I would be able to do something good for you and for your church, and I pray that um, it would all be used for our good. Bless us now through the preaching of your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's look first at the wife's rejection, and this, if you were here last week, you'll know this is a little bit of a review from what we saw at the end of the chapter. Uh, Jacob loved Rachel. We said that he had probably loved her from the first time that he saw her. Um, We're not surprised that Moses says in verse 30 uh, that he loved her more than Leah, Um, but it is a little uncomfortable when we get to verse 31 and we see that Moses also says that Leah was hated. Um, Your translation may say unloved, it may say not loved, but the word is hated, and it conveys more than ill will. This was a very intense disdain. Jacob held contempt for Leah. He lacked respect for her because in his mind, she was inferior to Rachel. And she was unworthy of his respect considering the part she had played in Laban's deception. One commentator that I read pointed out that there was actually a legal dimension to this hatred. In other words, being rejected by Jacob meant that Leah's status changed. She went from being the wife to somewhere in between the other wife and a servant of the house. So she'd been cast off emotionally. She'd been cast off physically. She had been cast off even in a familial way. And while some, and I guess I understand, they want to point out her culpability, right? She she obviously had pretended to be Rachel on the wedding night. But that did not justify Jacob's rejection of her. And it also did not change the fact that she remained worthy of the Lord's concern. In the words of Ian Duguid, God has a special concern for those whose lives are particularly, particularly difficult, whether or not they have contributed to their situation. And the Lord chose to bless her. He didn't bless her by changing Jacob's heart, but He did bless her by opening her womb and giving her children. In the midst of of her circumstances, the Lord expressed compassion to her. He used her to to fulfill the plan that He had established and to fulfill the promises that He had made. She may have been dishonored by her father and used as a pawn and She may have been um, treated as if she were non-existent by her husband, 
but she would be honored by the Lord. He would bestow glory upon her because He would grant her children. And as I said last week, we're not only given her name, the, the names of the children, we're also uh, given the reasons behind the names. And I told you there were, there were a couple things we learned. First, we learned um, about her desire for her husband. Right? She, she wanted his love and companionship. She wanted to not only be attractive in his eyes, but she wanted, to, she wanted him to desire to be connected to her emotionally. And she was refusing to take on the label of the other woman. She abhorred the idea, in the words of Donald Gray Barnhouse, she abhorred the idea of living in a tent with her children around while, her, while Jacob lived with Rachel and took little notice of her. And there's reason to believe that that's exactly what happened because Moses tells us that she stopped conceiving. But we're going to learn in just a minute that she remained fertile. He had turned his back on her. And second, we learn what she believed and what she desired um, and how she felt about the Lord. She knew he had seen her. She knew he had heard her. She knew he continued to see her and continued to hear her. She knew that he ha- she hadn't been forsaken by him even in the midst of her circumstances. And by the time she gave birth to Judah, her cries for her husband to to meet all her needs, which is a common but misplaced desire. But those desires were eventually replaced by her confidence that the Lord would meet all her needs. And that's why she would praise Him. Now, I know I said this last week, and I but I don't think it can be said enough. For those who are single, for those of you who may be either single or married, but for those of you who have been mistreated and, and used and broken and abandoned and feel isolated and alone, or maybe that's your current situation, you, you are currently being mistreated and hurt, I want you to know the Lord sees you, the Lord hears you, He will see you, He will hear you. He will not cast you off. He will not forsake you. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So that is true for you as it was for Leah. And the elders would love, I didn't say this last week and I should have, the elders would love to minister to you and to help you and to come alongside you if that is what you desire. If we can do so, please let us know. And I also want to ask a few questions specifically for those of you who are wives. In the light of, in, in light of this passage, to whom do you look? To whom are you looking to meet your needs? In whom and in what are you placing your hope? Who or what brings you satisfaction? Have you come to the point in the place, have you come to the point in your life where you've realized that your husband cannot meet all of your needs? Have you come to the place where you realize that he won't because he can't and he's not supposed to complete you? Please know your husband was never meant to meet your every need. Your husband was 
never meant to be the ultimate source of your satisfaction. Your husband was never meant to provide your identity. All of those things are only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is found in Him alone. Your husband is responsible to point you to Him. Your only Savior. Because no one will meet your needs and bring you fulfillment or love you better than our Lord Christ. Hands down. So now let's look at a husband's reaction. Again, Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. He had chosen her. He had served her or for her for 14 years. His desire was for, for the promises to be fulfilled through her. He had never wanted Leah. He, he didn't choose her, and he had been deceived into marrying her. Like his own father before him, who preferred Esau over him, like his grandfather who preferred Ishmael over Isaac, he too had a preference, and his preference was Rachel. He too had a desire that ran counter to the Lord's desire. He too had wishes that were different than the wishes of the Lord. He thought he had a better perspective than anybody else about what everybody needed. But the Lord didn't give in to Jacob's preferences. The Lord didn't grant his wishes. It was the Lord who knew better than Jacob about what was best for everyone. His plan was best. And his plan was to fulfill his plan and his promises through Leah rather than Rachel. It would be Leah's son and not Rachel's son who would be mentioned in the genealogies of Jesus. And notice, when Jacob realized that Rachel was barren... He didn't plead to God on her behalf like Abraham pleaded to God on Ishmael's behalf. He also didn't intercede for her like Isaac interceded for Rebekah when Rebekah was in the midst of her barrenness. The only words he spoke until verse 25 were directed at his wife, and they were words of anger. Look at verse 2, Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, am I in the place of God? Who has withheld, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of your womb? Her dramatic statement, it is, it is dramatic, but her dramatic statement was fueled by desperation and, and shame and frustration, and rather than respond to her in an understanding way, Rather than show her honor, rather than show her sympathy, rather than exhibit a tender heart, rather than encourage her to cast all her cares upon the Lord, rather than remind her of the grace and the mercy that God had shown both his mother and grandmother when they were in the midst of the same experience, he chose to lash out in anger. Am I God? I haven't done anything to you. This is all his responsibility. 
And while it was true, it was God that had closed her womb, Jacob's response was thoughtless and uncharitable and insensitive and unsympathetic and heartless. And then to make matters worse, he fails to step in and remind his wives of the fallout from his grandmother Sarah's plan and the futility and the insanity of doing the same thing in the same way and and expecting different results. And then he passively complied to their manipulation rather than refuse to participate in their ill-fated plans. And even worse, he failed to protect their uh, purity and virtue. The bottom line is he abdicated his spiritual leadership. So I want to ask a few questions of our husbands as well. How do you respond to your wife in highly emotional circumstances, regardless of her words and actions? Are you flippant and dismissive? Or worse, are you cruel and demeaning? Or do you respect her? And do you exercise your leadership patiently, lovingly, kindly, and considerately? Do you respond appropriately even when she doesn't deserve it? Do you increase her value in in her own sight and in the sight of others? Do you honor her? Do you appreciate her? Do you glory in her? Do you refuse to settle for what's easy? and convenient? Are you focused on her long-term holiness rather than her short-term happiness? Do you make sure you don't put her in situations in which her physical, emotional, or spiritual purity are put into question or defiled or her virtue is threatened? And do you protect her from putting herself in those positions? In the words of Calvin, nothing destroys the friendship of life more than contempt. Nor can we really love any but those whom we esteem, for love must be connected with respect. So that... That is a wife's rejection and a husband's reaction. Now let's look at the sibling rivalry. And I called it a rivalry because in the dictionary, a rival is defined as one one of two or more striving to reach or obtain something that only one can possess. And on the surface, that's what's happening, right? These two sisters are battling for Jacob. They were in competition. And it's about to enter into a, a fight. But when we dig down below the, the surface, we really see that there's more to that. Leah wanted what Rachel had, and Rachel wanted what Leah had. Um, Leah actually um, had children, but she wanted the love of a husband. 
And she wanted the love of a husband because her identity and worth were wrapped up in the love of a man. And Rachel had the love of a man, but she wanted children because her identity and worth were wrapped up in being a mother. In the words of Richard Phillips, they had some of what they wanted, but the part that they did not possess controlled their hearts. So rather than be grateful for what they had, they, like Sarah before them, took matters into their own, plan, uh, in, into their own hands. And they started this baby battle. And Rachel was the first to swing. And she's following the customs of the day, but they're pagan customs, and she decides to give Bilhah, her servant, to Jacob, because that would count for her, and she would be having those children on her behalf, Um, and she really wanted one, but she ends up with two, and Rachel names the first Dan, because she believed that God had judged and had vindicated her, and she named The second one, Naphtali or Naphtali, because she believed she had been struggling with her sister and the birth of this son was a declaration of her victory. But I think we have to ask ourselves, we have to wonder if this wasn't just but a little bit hollow, because think about it, every time her servant had a child, she would be reminded of what? That she was barren. She's the only one in this scenario who's barren. Well, Leah decided she wasn't going to tap out after the first round, and so she decides she's going to swing back, counterpunch, and she, like her sister, gives her servant Zilpah, and Zilpah keeps pace with Bilhah, and she has two of her own. Um, Leah named the first Gad, which meant good luck, and Uh, Several commentators point out that this is also the name of a Near Eastern God of fortune that Isaiah mentions in Isaiah 65, 11. She named his second son Asher, which sounds like the Hebrew word for happy. So here's what's going on. Rachel has two through her servant. She says, vindicated, I win. And Leah says, not so fast. Not so fast. Look how lucky I am. Look how happy I am. And everybody sees how happy I am. I'm still winning 6-2. And I want to pause here and make sure you realize I'm not trying to be funny at all. I'm simply trying to describe the depths to which these women have gone. To one-up one another and to win. It's sad. It is, it is not funny in the least. It is extremely sad, and it only gets worse. In verses 14 to 21, things progress from self-reliance and do-it-yourself plans to faithlessness and superstition and something else. Lehi's first son, Reuben, found some mandrakes, and these were plants that were considered to be a cross between uh, a fertility drug and an aphrodisiac, and Rachel sees that 
Reuben has them, and she decides she wants them. She wants them because this is going to cure her barrenness, or so she believes. But Leah doesn't want to share. Rachel asks for them. Leah says, no, I don't want to share. I mean, that'd basically be forfeiting and turning the win over to Rachel. And she doesn't want to do it. But Rachel shows that she is as desperate for children as Esau was for food. And she brokers a deal. She was going, she wanted to receive payment for Jacob's services. So she told Leah she would she could have Jacob for a night as long as she got the mandrakes. You see how this is this is just a downward spiral. One commentator and pastor said Jacob had been reduced to a virtual breeding stud. And the language bears this out, by the way. Because in verse 16, when it says she lay with her, uh, uh, so he lay with her that night, the word lay does not describe an act of intimacy that takes place within the confines of an appropriate marriage relationship. It's the word used to describe what Lot's daughters did with their father in chapter 19. It's the word that describe what the Philistines wanted to do with Rebekah in chapter 26. It's the word that describes what Shechem will perpetrate against Dinah in chapter 34. And it's the word that will describe what Reuben will do with Bilhah in chapter 36. All of which are very, very inappropriate. Well, to no one's surprise, the plan failed. Leah had three more children, two sons and a daughter. The two sons named Issachar and, and Zebulun, or Zebulun. So she's had a total of seven. Her team now has nine. But Leah's plight has not changed. Look at verse 20. God has endowed me with a good endowment now my husband will honor me. Six children later, ten years later, Leah is still hoping that Jacob will love her. Leah is still hoping she's finally done enough. Leah is still hoping that she's earned his favor. And Rachel's plight hasn't changed either. She's still barren. So all of their, all of their self-reliance, all of their self-sufficiency, all of their self-indulgence has been nothing more than, in the words of Richard Phillips, soul-corrupting idol service. He went on to say this. So how do we identify the idols in our own lives? One good diagnostic question comes from Rachel. What do I think I must have in order to be happy? And without it, I feel I cannot live. Here is another from Leah. What thing that I lack is keeping me from being grateful for what I have? 
Such idols, he says, are usually the source of our envy, discontent, and anger. The reality is that God is able to meet all our needs. The answer to envy, anger, frustration, and fear is a faith that seeks and desires only God. This means that the way to turn from the idols that corrupt our character, ruin our relationships, and lead us into sin is to turn back to the Lord. So brothers and sisters, how would you answer those questions? You get to join me. I've already been asking them myself. Is there something you think you must have in order to be happy? And without it, you feel as though you cannot live. If there is, I encourage you, repent, turn away from it, and turn to the Lord Jesus. The second question was, is there something that you lack that is keeping you from being grateful for what you have? Again, if there is, repent from it, turn away from it, and turn to Christ. Well, let's notice verses 22 to 24 as we close. Moses writes, then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. In the midst of it all, God remembered Rachel. It's not like she forgot him, or he forgot her. She forgot him, but he hadn't forgot her. He hadn't forgot her. It's actually covenantal language. In the midst of it all, despite her choices... Despite her struggle, despite her own, her own effort and her own manipulation, despite it all, she was a covenant member. As much as it, it may have appeared that she had forsaken the Lord, He had not forsaken her. He heard her prayer. He heard her cry for help. He heard her plea for a child. And he had listened. And according to the kind intention of his will, and at the exact right moment, in the fullness of time, when, when his purposes for everybody in this scenario had been fulfilled, he opened her womb. He took her reproach. She took away her shame from her barrenness. He bestowed grace and mercy upon her. He blessed her, not because she earned it, not because she deserved it in any way. He actually blessed her despite her. He blessed her because she was his. In the words of Gordon Wenham, this is a story of the triumph of God's power over human sinfulness. It is into this most bitterly divided family that the forefathers of the twelve tribes were born. He said, fathered by a lying trickster and mothered by shark-tongued shrews, the patriarchs grew up to be less than perfect themselves. Yet, he said, through them the promises of Abraham took a great step toward their fulfillment. 
showing that it is a divine grace, not human merit, that gives mankind hope for salvation. And this isn't simply Rachel's story. This isn't, or this is also Leah's story, and it's Jacob's story, and guess what? It's your story, and it's my story. It's our story. This is a story for, this is anyone's story, or this is the story of anyone who will place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. What I said when we began is worth repeating. There's nothing God cannot do. Our God cannot do. He can bring life from what is barren. He can bring glory from shame. He can bring healing and hope from what is broken. He can bring well-being out of dysfunction. He can bring order out of chaos. He can bring harmony out of discord. There's also nothing He cannot overcome. He can overcome rejection and preferences and inability and faithlessness and discontent. He can overcome our sins and He will use anything and everything to bring about what is for His glory and our good. Just as He has fulfilled the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, He will continue to keep and fulfill His promises to us because all the promises, you've heard us say this many times, all of the promises are yes and amen in Christ to whom we have been united. Brothers and sisters, we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. Our souls were spiritually barren. And we lacked the ability to manipulate or to orchestrate our new birth in any way. And it was according to the kind intention of His will and in the right time, in the perfect time, when His Spirit gave us life. And He granted us the gift of faith. And by faith, we have, He has enabled us to lay hold of His Son, the Savior, the God-man, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, taking hold of Him, Him who took away our reproach, took our sin and our shame to His cross upon which He was crucified for our salvation. He then conquered the grave by rising from the dead, again, for our salvation, so that we could and would live. Brothers and sisters, look what God has done. There is always hope, because there's nothing our God cannot do. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, by Your Spirit and grace, would You enable us to receive this Word with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. For Your glory and for our good, and for the sake of Christ and His church, I pray. Amen.